0: In this episode, buffalo hunters Jim White, Hoodoo Brown, Prairie Dog Morrow, and Josiah Wright Moore are camped along the Saline River, preparing hides to take to the market. During the evening, just before mealtime, a hunter by the name of Hoodoo Brown tells his account of the aftermath of the Battle of the Washita, which occurred on November 27, 1868. The battle best remembered when Lt. Col. George Armstrong Custer's 7th U.S. Cavalry attacked Black Kettle's southern Cheyenne camp. Custer's forces attacked the village because scouts had found it by tracking the trail of an Indian party that had raided white settlers. Black Kettle and his people had been at peace and were seeking peace. On that day, Custer's soldiers killed women and children in addition to warriors. They also took many captives to serve as hostages and human shields. The Aftermath is the December 7, 1868 story of Custer's return to the battlefield to claim the remains of the fallen and boast of his accomplishments to General Sheridan. Wild West Podcast proudly presents The Aftermath Battle of the Washita. <laughs> It was late afternoon when all the slain buffalo had been skinned and cut in half. Besides the hides, we took the hindquarters of meat for smoking and brought back to camp all of the hides for curing. This was a good haul for us, for the buffalo meat sold for three cents a pound, and we needed the extra profit just in case our shipment of hides did not pan out. We had a good hunt that day and unloaded the hindquarters at camp and dug a hole. The hole is like a grave dug into the ground. Then we placed the hides in the hole with the fur toward the earth. The rim of the hide was staked to the edge of the grave, forming a leather vat. We cut the meat into three chunks of ham, sprinkled them with salt, and seasoned them with saltpeter before throwing them into the vat. Prairie Dog and I covered the vat within a thick hide to protect the meat from the sun. We similarly pickled the tongues. We smoked meat thoroughly before it was taken out of the vat and cut into smooth pieces. The smooth pieces were strung out along the bear grass. Prairie Dog and I then worked on constructing a smokehouse. A smokehouse made out of hides to cure the meat. The meat we would later deliver to the post-commissary. Hoodoo Brown and Jim White unloaded the pelts. I took mental notes on how they laid out the hides in rows, creating a hide yard. The hides had been spread out, flesh-side up, and holes cut near the edges with a tomahawk. I watched as Hoodoo started to use his knife to cut the holes in the hide's corners. This was when Jim yelled out, We do not have time for that knife, George. Use your pick. Hoodoo went around with an armful of pegs and distributed them on the hides. He averaged about 16 pegs to the hide. Hoodoo and Jim, together, drove the stakes into the ground and stretched the skins. The hide would remain there until they had become as hard as flint. When the fleshy side of the green hide is exposed to the sun, the skin becomes as hard as iron. I watched as Jim and Hoodoo sprinkled the hides with poison to finish the process. The poison would keep the bugs out of the hides. After we finished preparing the hides, I got an axe and went to the river bank and began cutting a supply of wood for the camp. I let the logs remain where they were felled, hacking off smaller branches and piling them beside the trees. Jim came out later to help me haul the firewood to our campsite. Next, we started our campfire to ready ourselves for the evening meal. The fire crackled in the corner of the campsite, projecting long shadows on the surrounding area. Hoodoo had dressed out some buffalo meat. The innards, the head, the hooves, and the lean, bony sides had all been dragged away from the campsite and scattered. On a spit over the fire, which was smoking, was an impaled large chunk of the hump meat. Beside the fire, on the square of dirty canvas, in a dark, irregular pile, was the rest of the meat. Hoodoo went up to the fire and put his body against the heat. Prairie Dog squatted on his haunches, "'Rose and stood beside Hoodoo, "'sniffing hungrily at the meat "'which was beginning to blacken around the edges. "'I looked out over the prairie "'as the sun began its descent over the horizon. "'I thought about how much daylight we had, "'an hour, maybe two, before darkness overtook our camp. "'The setting sun gave off colors brushed upon an artist's canvas.' as if those rays were destined to create a great work of art, one given to those open to capturing simple moments in the soul. "'Too big a piece,' Hoodoo said. "'Won't be done for an hour. "'A body gets a hunger skinning all day, "'and he needs food if he's gonna skin all night.' "'It won't be so bad,' Jim said. "'There's a moon, and we'll get a little coffee before the meat's done.' "'Jim nodded and set the coffee pot on the edges of the fire,' where some coals were beginning to glow dimly. Soon the coffee was boiling. The aroma of the coffee and the rich odor of the meat, dripping and falling into the fire, blended and came across to my nostrils. "'Say, who has a good story they can tell while this meat's cooking?' Jim asked. I looked over in the direction of Hoodoo. I could tell he was content sitting by the fire and looked as if he had something to say. Hoodoo said he has a story, I said. He wanted to tell it to me the other night. Yeah? What is it about? asked Jim. Now Josiah Wright Moore, I am not sure I want to tell that story to everyone, replied Hoodoo. I just wanted to tell it to you. Go ahead, I said. You're among friends here. Well, I guess, Josiah, replied Hoodoo. Hoodoo said it's about the time he went with Custer to the aftermath of the Black Kettle raid on the Ouachita River, I said. I guess this would be an excellent time to settle in and hear that story. What do you say, Hoodoo? Yep, I guess this would be as good a time as ever, smiled Hoodoo. I was not at the raid on Black Kettle's village, exclaimed Hoodoo. I had been held over at Fort Supply when Custer took the 7th Cavalry to the Ouachita River. It was not until Custer returned to Fort Supply with some prisoners from the Black Kettle Raid that our scouts were ordered to travel back to the battle location. I remember the date well, December 7th of 68. How many weeks had passed before you got your orders to return, asked Jim. If I remember correctly, we were given the orders to return to the battlefield two weeks after the Battle of the Washita. replied Hoodoo. Our mission was to help bury the dead and participate in the renewed offensive against the tribes. A snowstorm hit the previous night that laid down eight inches of drifting white cover. That must have been a terribly cold start to a long trip, laughed Jim. Yes, it was, replied Hoodoo. Very cold indeed. When we left camp at Fort Supply, I was told that this was the same direction Custer took when he raided Black Kettle's village. I was not sure where we would fetch up, but our objective was Fort Cobb. Sheridan and his staff were with us when we departed at 10 a.m. Custer was given command, but Sheridan and his staff would accompany and direct much of the campaign. The orders were to attack any tribesmen who were en route. How many were in your command when you left the supply post? I asked. The command totaled nearly 1,700, explained Hoodoo. This included 11 companies of the 7th Cavalry, one of the 10th, and 10 of the 19th Kansas Volunteer Cavalry. The Kansas Volunteer Cavalry was under Colonel Crawford, with 30 or so white, Osage, and Kaw Indian scouts. Sounds as if you were preparing for another battle, stated Jim as he poked a stick at the fire under the buffalo roast. You got that right, responded Hoodoo. We were to check on the dead at the Washita and move against the Indians if they gave us trouble. But we left three of the 3rd Infantry Companies, one of the 5th and one of the 38th. These men were to stay behind to garrison and continue building Camp Supply. All were under the command of a Captain Page of the 3rd. Being that far out deep in Indian territory, were you concerned about your rations and supplies? inquired Prairie Dog. To some degree, responded Hoodoo, some of the men became concerned about having enough forage for our animals. When we departed our encampment, we were equipped with sufficient forage and rations, thirty days' worth. All these rations had been delivered from Fort Dodge, with the animals being in satisfactory condition to set out anew. We loaded up three hundred six-mule wagons with provisions and were respectively guarded front and rear by the cavalry and infantry. You said you were under a snowstorm at the time of your departure? How bad was your travel? I asked. It was bad. Very bad, responded Hoodoo. On the first day out, our command traveled about a dozen miles, crossed Wolf Creek, and bivouacked on the plain along the south bank. It did not take long for many of the wagon teams to play out and more were hurriedly forwarded from Camp Supply to take their place. Hoodoo paused for a minute and looked into the fire to gain some thought about his story. "'Yes, I remember now,' continued Hoodoo. "'It was at 6 a.m. on the 8th that our command was again in motion south. Our wagons, arrayed in four columns, traveled along the trail. We were guarded on either flank by both horse and foot troops.' A van guarded the rear, along with several mounted squadrons. We were on a constant lookout for Indians, and far in front of our convoy rode flankers. I was told the purpose of the flankers was to probe for Indians. How was the terrain during your march? asked Jim. I noticed them parts of the country to be marked with hills and multiple gullies. Yes, responded Hoodoo. It was rough going for the wagons and men alike. During our march, our convoy passed through lands dominated on one side by assorted gravelry hummocks, and on the other by thickets of dwarfed oak trees. After traveling about 30 miles, we camped along Hackberry Creek. There we found increasing evidence of the pressure of Indians in the area. Hoodoo paused and looked into the fire. The sunset became prominent to all of us who sat in front of the fire. We waited for our dinner, enjoyed the warm fire and coffee, while listening intently to Hoodoo's story on Custer's return to the Ouachita. Hoodoo then broke the silence. On the third day out, a terrific northern enveloped us. This northern substantially impeded our wagon's advance. That night, with temperatures hovering near 18 degrees below zero, We settled in along the Canadian River at a place with lousy water and little timber. The camp on the Canadian was a wintry blast. The freezing cold wind swept mercilessly through the valley, demolishing tents and extinguishing the few fires we had built against the intense cold. Damn, said Jim. Just listening to this story has given me a chill all up and down my spine. Go on, go on with the story. The night was intolerably dark, continued Hoodoo. I could hear beneath the midnight howl, amid the branches that groaned in the ever-whitening light. The troopers and our scouts were unable to keep warm. The men were afraid to lie down for fear of freezing to death. Throughout the night, I could hear within our camp's limits long hours of men tramping up and down. The animals, without covering or protection from the wind, suffered intensely. All night long, the animals shivered at the picket rope. I could hear the poor brutes utter melancholy moans, but it was beyond the power of any of our men to alleviate their sufferings. At the headquarters, where the officers bivouacked, it was no better. Fires were out. Tents were either down or flapping in the wind. The following day went much the same. Our convoy of troops forded the river in below zero temperatures, "'and the wind continued its barrage unabated. "'We found the crossing difficult, and it took five hours to cross, "'with many animals falling or becoming otherwise hurt in the icy bottom. "'Anyone for a drink?' asked Jim. "'I'm feeling a bit cold and was wondering if any of you would like to share some of this scamper juice.' "'Jim pulled the cork from the jug he was holding and passed it over to me. "'The whiskey helped turn down the volume on my thoughts.' It brought memories of good times past and let me dwell rather than think. And at that moment, I am here and not, existing in two perfect moments. Somehow it steadied me, giving me the resolve to learn more of what Hoodoo had to offer. I could not help at the time to look out over the plains enjoying the company, the warmth of the fire, and the smell of the roast cooking on the spit." I looked up at the edge of a cloud, noticing the brilliant white patch. The white patch of the cloud turned a page on the day, catching its last ray of sun. The rest of the sky was dove gray with a subtle hint of purple, just enough to announce the coming sunset. It was then that Prairie Dog let out a cough. He had taken in one too many swigs from the scamper juice and spat the remains into the fire. We all laughed while Jim asked Hoodoo to continue his story. Hoodoo coughed a few more times and drew in a breath to gain his composure. Now back up on the plains, our column proceeded slowly downstream to the east, until late in the day, as I could see the antelope hills which loomed ahead, said Hoodoo. Finally at 4 p.m. on December 10th, we made camp along the north side of the Ouachita River. I was informed by one of the scouts that we were five or so miles below the ashes of Black Kettle's destroyed village. The next morning, a group of our scouts was ordered to accompany Sheridan and Custer to the Washita battlefield. The escort included several members of the general officer's staff. Our party traced the north side of the Washita. After one and a half hours of travel by horse, we approached the river from the northeast. I understood the Northeast approach was along the same route Elliot and his battalion had taken in preparation for the initial charge. We then crossed a stream with several members of our party, including a newspaper correspondent by the name of Kyme. The escort was composed of detachments from several of the Seventh Companies under Captain Yates and Lieutenant Custer's commands. The advance to the battlefield was preceded by several of our team of Indian scouts. What we witnessed at the battleground could never be described in all of its gruesome lack of glory. The bodies of nearly all the warriors killed in the fight had been concealed or removed. The corpses of the squaws and children who had been slain in the first charge were wrapped in blankets. Their remains were bound with lariats for preparation for removal and burial. We also found many of the Indian dogs' corpses in the vicinity of their owners' burned-out lodges. That must have smelled terrible putrid, said Jim. How could you stand that awful smell of death? Ten days had elapsed since the battle, and scores of Indian bodies remained unburied or unconcealed. A rumor about our party sustained the idea that the Indians abandoned the bodies in haste. The Indians had become fearful of a second retribution so they quickly moved away from the battlefield, leaving the dead unattended. Our party approached the desolate ruins of the village. I remember when we entered the camp how our group rousted thousands of noisy ravens and crows. These birds took instant flight and scattered at our approach. I could see wolves in the distance, watching the pondering movements of our soldiers. On examining the site our party found the blanket-wrapped remains of a warrior. Then others appeared, finally numbering thirty bodies, many of which had been similarly prepared. Some of the bodies were laid in the branches of trees. In contrast, others were placed under protections made of bushes. At the village site, we saw the charred remains of the Cheyenne homes. We all observed a large number of corpses. The number of dead we found on the battlefield proved that the enemy's loss in killed warriors far exceeded the number of 103, first reported by Custer. What I found to be most disgusting is the nearby carcasses of ponies. We counted 500 dead horses that were captured from the Indians and killed by Custer's order. I looked over to a high point of the battlefield and observed Sheridan and his escort mount the ridge from which they obtained an overview of the field. From there... Custer must have explained how the engagement had unfolded. I witnessed Custer pointing to locations along the deserted battlefield. One of the scouts told me that the ridge where Custer stood now was the same ridge he took during battle. The scout who stood next to me said that Custer streaked through the village, shot one warrior in the head, and took station on a hillock. This hillock location was a quarter mile south of the battle. From the hillock... Custer directed the movements of his regiment. It was at this moment in Hoodoo's story that I looked over at Jim. Jim was sitting next to Prairie Dog. He looked angry as he tossed a rock into the fire. The rock hit the fire with such a force that it interrupted Hoodoo's story, sending an array of sparks into the air. We all looked over at Jim. I could see disgust ranging in Jim's face. I could tell a form of hate raged within Jim as he spoke out tempted words that seemed to come deep within him. Custer took the devil's path and left his soldiers on the field to die so he could claim glory. Spit out Jim. Custer's boost of ego framed him as a false hero. All of his men knew he left Elliot's men in harm's way, only to take the prize which corrupted Custer's soul. Silence fell over our camp. Jim's words echoed a disdainful reaction to Custer's name. "'I would agree,' said Hoodoo. "'This notion of Custer's glory became apparent as we rode from the hillock "'in the company to which Lieutenant Owen hailed downstream. "'We rode along the south side of the river, "'approximating Elliott's route away from the village. "'The remaining members of our party shortly followed us. "'We proceeded down the river and ascended another rise to view the country,' "'then started downstream again. "'Some hundred yards away, "'our party encountered the body of a white man. "'The man was laid out on the prairie perfectly naked "'and covered with arrow and bullet holes. "'One of the scouts said it was one of Elliot's men. "'By the look of the remains, "'someone said it was likely Sergeant Major Walter Kennedy. "'Lieutenant Custer asked members of our party "'to mark the location of the bodies. "'We then continued east.' "'passing over a small ravine. "'Soon more objects appeared in the grass "'about two hundred yards beyond the ravine. "'The sighting encouraged the riders of our party "'to hurry forward as our horses galloped to the location. "'There, within a space of fifteen yards, "'I witnessed the naked bodies of sixteen men. "'All of the men lay frozen to the ground as solidly as stone.' These dead men, all laying face down, were recognized by a man in our unit as members of Elliott's command. The bodies of several cavalry mounts lay nearby. Many cartridge shells littered the terrain around the corpses. The spent cartridge shells provided evidence of hard fighting. The bodies were difficult to look at since all of the soldiers' bodies were mutilated. We were told this mutilation occurred in accordance with tribal customs. Did the men you were with question whether Custer had done enough to find and rescue Elliot's men? Asked Prairie Dog. Jim quickly responded, Hell no. The tragedy happened because Custer had abandoned Elliot. Everyone who was at the battle knew Custer was determined to leave before the Indians could turn his triumph into something quite the opposite. My name is Koji. And I'm Michelle. And this... under a warrant authorized by the Secretary of War, who was his enemy of the United States. He was my grandfather on my dad's side. To hear more stories about Japanese America, you can listen to this podcast anywhere you normally download your podcast. What did you see as you looked over the scene where Elliot's men laid? Asked Prairie Dog. The scouts and I studied the scene and concluded what had happened to Major Elliot and his men, replied Hoodoo. As we investigated the area, we found that a short distance from the spot where the bodies lay, we could see the carcasses of some of the party's horses. Our team determined that Elliot and his men might have tied together the horses while they took cover fire early in the fight. What do you think happened to Elliot and his men? asked Prairie Dog. All I can say is Elliot must have seen his situation to be hopeless, replied Hoodoo. From the looks of the battlefield remains, he must have been encircled by his enemy. He probably found his unit in a situation where he could not break through the lines. The Indian force he encountered came from several villages upstream. His unit must have undoubtedly been outnumbered, more than a hundred to one. How do you think the unit defended themselves from the attack of so many warriors all at once? I asked. I think at this point in the battle. Elliot must have given the orders to dismount,' Hoodoo replied. "'I think he must have relied on the battle tactics used at Beecher Island. "'He may have had his men tie their horses together. "'I say this because the horses fell several yards from where we found their bodies. Elliot's men must have prepared cover by lying on the ground until they met their end. "'Near the corpses of Elliot and his men, "'our group found several Indians presumed killed by the soldiers.' "'What was Sheridan's reaction when they found Elliot and his men?' I asked. "'Did Sheridan question Custer on why he left Elliot?' "'I think Sheridan was satisfied to find the remains of Elliot and his men, "'for I never heard him question Custer,' exclaimed Hoodoo. "'Once Sheridan and his party were satisfied in determining Elliot's fate, "'Sheridan ordered our party back to camp. "'As we returned to camp,' We passed through some of the hastily abandoned villages of the downstream Arapahoes, Cheyennes, and other tribes. The area was littered with kettles, pots, rifles, untanned robes, lodge poles, and hundreds of other items. Hoodoo paused. I'm not sure why, said Hoodoo, but after seeing the abandoned plunder, Sheridan issued orders for us to destroy it all. Hoodoo took a burning stick from the fire. He held it up so all of us could see the smoke rising into the sky. As Hoodoo looked at the flaming branch, he said, The fires consumed the abandoned dunnage, and smoke could be seen rising along several miles of the Washita." Hoodoo took the burning stick, jabbed the fire end of the stick into the ground, snuffed out the burning embers, and stated in a solemn, depressed voice, Once we set fire to the remaining dunnage, our detachment scoured the ground downstream, near an abandoned Indian encampment. At this location, we came upon the remains of a white woman and child. That must have been that Clara woman who was captured by the Indians, responded Jim. I've heard this story. The caravan she was with was attacked by 200 Indians. She must have had a fate worse than death. What did you see? I asked. Yes, what did you see? responded Prairie Dog. When the captain and I arrived at this spot along the brush-covered banks of the Washita River, we dismounted, explained Hoodoo. The captain left me to hold the horses. In a few minutes, he returned and asked me if I wanted to look. I went, and what did I see? A woman with her skull crushed in. She laid on a cottonwood log. Her little boy was lying on top of her. "'One of the men in our regiment said the woman's name was Clara Blinn. "'The boy was her two-year-old child, Willie. "'How do you think they died?' I asked. "'I asked the captain the same question on how they may have died,' replied Hoodoo. "'The captain told me both had been murdered by the squaws. "'That's what squaws do when a fight starts. "'They seek out anyone who might be an enemy,' said the captain.' "'Say, weren't those two captured in Kansas, her husband, and some others killed at the time?' asked Jim. "'Yes,' replied Hoodoo. "'I found out afterward that Blen's folks lived close to Ottawa, Kansas. Her folks were named Harrington. The Kiowa had taken her and her two-year-old child in October when they raided a wagon train traveling along the Arkansas River near Fort Lyon.' "'What did you do with the bodies?' asked Prairie Dog." We picked up the bodies and took the remains to our camp to be examined. From what I could tell, the woman bore two bullet holes in the back of the head. Her head was scalped and crushed, seemingly by a hatchet. The child, a boy, bore only a bruise on his face. I overheard someone in our party say the boy must have died by being flung against a tree. Blen's remains, her son, and Major Elliot were transported to the main camp to be conveyed ultimately to Fort Arbuckle for burial. Several wagons were promptly dispatched under Lieutenant Hale to retrieve the other dead and return them to camp. A trench was dug on the crest of a beautiful knoll overlooking the Washita Valley, and there by torchlight, Elliot's men were interred. Several men from each of the companies to which the deceased soldiers belonged, were present to identify their remains. By the time Hoodoo had finished his story, the sun had gone behind the western range of the plains. The sky became black with tranquility, married to a poetry of stars dancing out in puffs of clouds. We all desired a cut of the roast. However, our most significant concerns were not so much the evening meal, but possible Indians in the area. That's it for now, as we close with a special announcement. Wild West Podcast will proudly present an all-new series entitled Trails, Cattle Drives, Cowboys, and Cattle Towns. This new series will explore the early cattle trade, relive the challenges of a trail drive, describe the character of a cowboy, and retell the stories of individuals who endured the hardships of the cattle trails of the 1800s. The podcast series will provide interesting sketches of early cowboys and their experiences on the range and on the trail during the days that tried men's souls. In addition, the podcast provides true narratives told by real cowboys and the men who fathered the cattle industry. So make sure you subscribe to our podcast listed at the end of the description text to the podcast to receive notification of all new episodes. You can also join us on Facebook at slash Wild West Podcast to review excerpts and historical accounts of this new series entitled Trails, Cattle Drives, Cowboys, and Cattle Towns. Your mother was raised the way down in Texas where the Jimson Weed and the Sanfords grow. We'll fill you up on picky Fair Joya. Till you are ready for Idaho. Whoopie tie, I get along, you little dogies. It's your misfortune and none of my own. Whoopie tie, I get along, you little dogies. You know that Wyoming will be your new home.